Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Plan that. <laughs> no, He's no, clever like no. that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity um, uh, to sit on this distinguished panel. And, and hopefully this, I'll, I'll go through these slides quickly. Um, that way we can kind of digest them and then hopefully escalate the conversation and, and make it a lot more interesting for all of us. So red light, green light, who makes the call? You know, so when you go into medicine, everybody knows about the Hippocratic Oath. And, and, and this, this guy lived several millennia ago. And the things that, the phrases that were attributed to him were written down in a Greek language that is now dead. Uh, and, and so it's gone through several revisions over the years. And we've kind of adapted it to modern times, so to speak. Uh, but the underlying principle is unchanged. Um, Neil Nasseri, first do no harm. Another common... Uh, way it's put is I will abstain for all intentional wrongdoing and harm. I will not knowingly do something that I know will harm the patient. And then you practice two things in dealing with patients. And this really transcends healthcare providers. So I think it's applicable, applicable to anybody that, that, that has interaction with that patient. Either help them, but certainly don't harm them. Okay. So medical ethics um, is something that has evolved and it's fairly recent in, in, in the healthcare um, spectrum. Um, it's not something that's been around for, for millennia, certainly not been around for centuries. It's barely been around for generations. Uh, but it has reshaped the way we practice medicine, even though oftentimes it goes unnoticed. And it's now, I think, probably the primary driver in the way we handle situations and talk about them. So in the 1930s, there were, prior to medicine, it was a very paternalistic approach to it. You, went, you were sick, you saw the doctor, and he told you what to do. And it was up to you to go do it. You usually didn't ask questions. You may not have had the education or the insight to ask the questions. You just assumed that they were acting in your best interest and you better go do it. Now, that presented some problems. Um, we know that um, in the 30s and 40s in the U.S., there were some very paternalistic uh, ideas that were set forth by our government. Syphilis was, was uh, a big deal back then. Uh, we had penicillin, which treated syphilis. However, the government knowingly infected Tuskegee men in Alabama mm. with syphilis to track the long-term effects yeah. of syphilis. Mm -hmm. And so the government was acting in a very paternalistic way, and the patients were responding in a very paternalistic way, but it certainly was not in the patient's best interest. So that that came to light, you know, I think in the 70s or the 80s when, the, when kind of the, the full extent of that uh, that debacle was elucidated. But you saw, you know, the generational change in the 60s and 70s. There was kind of a skepticism of authority. Um, you can take that however you will. But I think that people were realizing that they had more control over their lives than they were either given credit for or allowed to have. Also, in the 70s, uh, or excuse me, in the 40s, after World War II, um, there, they, the horrors that were done in the concentration camps by the Germans uh, on, the, on, the, on behalf of science and experimentation became widely known. And then you had the Nuremberg codes that are that arose from the Nuremberg trial about things you should and should never do to a person, and that was kind of the beginning of medical ethics uh, as commonly known. So we've seen a significant and deliberate transition from paternalistic to uh, patients are better suited knowing what is in their best interest. You can give me the information, but I, as an autonomous individual, can process that and tell you what I want, what suits me, my family my social mores, my religious beliefs, et cetera. So you saw a transfer of autonomy to the patients. And then out of that, 
when you allow the patients to be more involved and maybe be the primary driver of their decisions, you have to delineate what is futile, which is what is scientifically proven, which is ethical. So you had to balance the expectations with the ever advancing complexity of our treatments. So along those similar paths, you saw a significant advancement in medical modalities, the way we were able to treat things, newer drugs, hypertension, antiphospholipids, able to treat autoimmune diseases, medications, also ventilator strategies, you know. From where we were just 10 years ago to where we are today is significant. And we're able to treat people that would otherwise pass away very quickly without any treatments whatsoever. We're able to salvage. And so we have to determine which ones are correct and which ones are incorrect. Dialysis is a big one. This came about just several decades ago, but it was a very limited resource. And you really had to make the hard decision as a patient goes into renal failure for whatever reason, whether they are a dialysis candidate or not. Now, it has become more ubiquitous now. You have CRRT, other modalities that are similar to dialysis that make it a little bit more convenient and more cost-effective and certainly widely distributed. But it is something that has changed what we define as futile care versus efficacious care, and then ultimately ECMO. Now, ethics and practice really didn't get started in the U.S. until the 70s. In New Jersey, there was a case, uh, Karen Ann Quinlan, which was kind of a right-to-die case. Uh, that, that saw the initiation of the Ethics Committee. It was mandated by the New Jersey State Supreme Court, and it was had, had to have many components, physicians, nurses, case managers, lawyers, administrative personnel, as well as clergy. And so that was kind of the primer by which we based what we consider common ethics, or commonplace and modern ethics committees on. But it was very slow, as you would expect. Uh, it was a complete paradigm shift. It required everybody to change the way we were thinking, and as we all know, that's not necessarily easy to do, easier said than done. And then the Joint Commission finally got on board, one of the big credentialing bodies out there. And in 1983, only 1% of hospitals had ethics committees. 2001, more than 90%. And I would be hard pressed to find a hospital or a hospital system nowadays that doesn't have an ethics committee in some way, shape, or form. And then also along these lines, patient autonomy arose arose and then we get with patient autonomy the patients get to be the decision makers and they can have advanced medical directives power of attorneys um, these helped make some of these processes that we're talking about easier because you're able to have that discussion up front you're ready, able to set the ground rules um, and you know the rules by which everybody's going to have to play because you know the patient's wishes ahead of time now the advanced directive allowed directive to be taken by the physicians by the physician family surrogates or other members to establish medical care wishes in the event that you were not, whether you were under general anesthesia, you were mentally or physically incapacitated, unable to speak, um, things along those lines. The power of attorney, a little bit different, and then it names the person or persons who can make the medical decision in the event that you're unable to, and that can be made at any point. That doesn't necessarily have to be the patient. The patient can sign away their power of attorney right away, even though they may be of sound mind and body. Uh, that, you know, you know what, I'm a good engineer, but I'm a terrible clinician. I want my wife to make all medical decisions, and you can do that. So when do you, when, what do you do when you neither have a power of attorney and you don't have an advanced directive? And that's really kind of the situations that we're really talking about, and I think that segues into the ethics committees, is what do you do when you don't have those things set up ahead of time? How do we retro-engineer the argument or the discussion 
to provide uh, the best care for the patient or at least respect the patient's wishes. And so hospitals and state medical boards throughout this country have, have set up policies and procedures to do just that. Now here in our state of Texas, uh, chapter 166 of the Texas Health and Safety Code, uh, also known as the Texas Futile Care Law, was enacted in 1999. Um, it's relatively recent, but it's far-reaching on definitions and descriptions of scenarios. If, if you haven't read it, it's actually a relatively easy piece of legislation to read. You can tell it was not written by lawyers in the back room somewhere. It was written by people that actually have to understand and utilize this law. But it provides the paradigm in which pers hospital personnel must follow in order to have legal immunity from prosecution. So we talk about ethics and things, and you know we talk about what's ethical, what is moral, but also what is legal, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these things touch on each other, and, and they're not complete silos. Um, there is a lot of overlap. And first and foremost, we want to make sure that we're protected. Even though we're acting in the patient's best interest, we're also acting in some regard in our own best interest. Um, and we try to put ourselves in our patient's shoes, uh, but that may not be the right thing to do. But you certainly, at a minimum, want to be legally protected by the with the decisions that you make. What this specifically does is it allows a family to give written info. You have to give the family written info concerning the hospital policy on the ethics consult process. What are the steps that we have to go to to obtain an ethics consult? What are the parameters that have to be met? What is the verbiage that has to be used? What is the context in the scenario in which the, in which the conversation is had? You have to give 48-hour notice, and I think this touched on the case that Tammy described. Is I was asking a little bit about the timeline. You know, when did they decide to get married? When did the ethics committee get involved? When was the decision made? And so, legally in the state of Texas, you have to give a 48-hour notice that hey, we're going to have a family meeting. We're going to have an ethics consult as to what the next plan of care will be. And the family has to receive that in writing. And they have to be invited to participate to the best of their ability. Now, WebEx and Zoom and things along those lines have helped facilitate that discussion because oftentimes we had to wait for somebody to fly in from out of state, et cetera. But that's no longer necessarily the case. Family members can consult their own medical specialist in, in that interim. And they also can get legal counsel to help them through the process as well. And then also in Texas, you have to provide a, a written ethics report. So if you consult the ethics team, they're going to put a note in the chart that's available for discussion, and it is also discoverable in court should the case ever proceed to litigation. And if the ethics consult fails to produce the result or, re or resolve their dispute in conjunction with the family, you try to arrange transfer to another facility or a provider that's willing to give the treatment. So if in my hospital I feel a patient is not an ECMO candidate, or they're all, they are an ECMO candidate, they're on ECMO, but I think that continuing ECMO is futile. I have a 48-hour notice to let the family know that, hey, we're going to have an ethics team meeting. Uh, we're going to provide a written report. And at the end of that report, if we say withdrawal of care is indicated and the family does not come to an agreement with us, then it is the duty of the hospital, but also the family as well, to try to find a hospital that will take the patient in transfer, and more specifically, a physician that's willing to treat them. So we've seen that before. I think that there was a case in England uh, where they were going to withdraw care from a child that had uh, cerebral palsy, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the family was adamant about not doing that, but the, the healthcare system was certainly within the parameters of the laws that they have there. And, and people all over the world were saying, we'll take the kid, we'll take the kid. Um, I don't know that a kid ultimately got transferred, but 
that's a scenario that happens probably not not that often, but often enough that we need to be aware of what, what the what the legal obligations not only of the providers but also the families. And then after 10 days, <clears throat> that this process cannot be adjudicated. The ethics committee thinks that withdrawal of care is indicated, or we cannot find a transferring facility. That the hospital and the physician can unilaterally withhold or withdraw care that has been deemed futile. And that's with legal protection. If the party disagrees, you can they can appeal it to the state court to ask for an extension. But the judge has to grant that extension only if he thinks that the extension will allow a reasonable likelihood for the transfer to take place. So it's, it's a well-written law that allows a lot of us to operate as fiduciaries, but also it gives us clear parameters on what we can and can't do. And it also gives the ground rules for the family as well, because oftentimes we kind of placate to their wishes and their desires. And it's, it's nice to know that we do have a backstop, that we do have uh, indemnity from some of these processes if we obviously know the law and we reach out to the appropriate people at the right time. Now, <clears throat> it's very rare that this law, or this direct act uh, law has needed to be enacted or uh, enforced. Uh, it's pretty rare. Uh, they did a survey of hospitals, 202 hospitals, over the span of about four years, uh, encountering almost four million patient uh, charts. No patients were derived of life-sustaining treatment against the will and wishes of the patient or their surrogate, power of attorney. And during that time, the Ethics Committee was only invoked 30 times. So several of those cases resulted in the patient being transferred, uh, or the family, by and large, reassessed their position and decided to withdraw care. And then, in many cases, the patient actually passed of natural causes, an arrhythmia event, something along those lines, in that interim that it was being, uh, it was being litigated. So that's kind of the law. And then so that's, that provides the framework that I think that we can have the discussion, what is ethical, what is moral, because we know what is legal. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, that allows us to have the gray area and the wiggle room uh, when it comes to individual cases. So those are the slides that I have. Um, I think that this is a good primer for us to jump into any questions that you might have, um, and I'm happy to answer those. The thing that I see, I'm sorry, lastly, the, the thing that I see that are new diseases. I mean, COVID, mm -hmm. prime example of this, right? Um, we thought that ECMO, these patients are having respiratory failure. These patients are ARDS to the nth degree, and VV ECMO is the only way we can treat these patients. But now we know that that's not necessarily the case. That's not the best thing for the patient. And also new paradigms. You know, we're going to invent a smaller, more compatible LVAD. We're going to have patients with better cannulas that can be extubated and walking around on, on ECMO. Um, we may even have destination ECMO, for all we know, um, in the next coming years. And so it is going to allow us to treat more sick patients with more yes, varying degrees. Yeah, it's a full-time job. And it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But I think that the ethics, even though it's relatively new to our specialty, really kind of in the 70s is when it became popularized, uh, it's been the guiding principle over, I think, over the past couple of decades and certainly within the past year. I had no idea that, and now it makes sense to me because I started my perfusion career in the early 80s. And so just the shift in, you know, some of the care 
from the 80s and I worked with Dr. Sagan in the medical center. So just, you know, in research and development and change in transplant that I had no clue that there was, you know, only 1% of hospitals had ethics committees back in the 80s. So now it kind of makes sense. Just what I was going to ask, there are different states, so every state has a similar law, but are they that? So, so yeah, so obviously you have kind of the litmus test. You have the uh, New Jersey was the first state that kind of enacted the ethics committee. And I'm sure that they learned some hard lessons along the way that provided insight for other states to adopt similar similar laws. And then once you get into joint commission, they obviously set the national standards. And so to fit within the parameters of what the joint commission uh, defines as uh, ethics committee, that there are some basic tenants or outlines that you have to fulfill. And then depending on what state you're in, okay. there may be some subchapters and some smaller nuances to the law, but they're roughly about the same. Okay. Do you know, and it probably varies between hospitals, but uh, in your experience, do, does the ethics committee meet, say, every two weeks, or is it on, on demand? So they used to. They used to meet kind of on a weekly or bi-weekly basis and review cases. But now it's as simple as putting the consult in the computer and making a phone call. Okay. And so they have, it's just like every other consult, depending on the medical staff bylaws, you know, consults have to be seen within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And so if it's an ICU, it's, all, it's generally considered a staff consult. And so uh, now a lot of hospital systems, it's the case at our hospital that we have an ethics team. That is their job. Their sole job is to provide ethics consults and to guide physicians and clinicians through that ethics process. Okay. Sometimes it's That's simple great. as a nurse practitioner. Sometimes it's a physician. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's always somebody there uh, that that um, provides the framework or the substrate for that note. And uh, they engage the different entities as necessary, mm -hmm. whether it's legal, administration, et right. cetera. Yeah, That's good. I, I, it seems to me that years ago it was not that way in. We would have these decisions that we needed help on, and uh, well, the ethics committee doesn't meet for the next two weeks, right. so mm -hmm. we yeah. would wait. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Or that decision went back to the surgeon. I mean, I, I'm thinking, you know, when that wasn't happening, then so has that benefited you? I mean, you're the you're the attending. Is this make you your practice? So that you focus on do no harm and you know patient care or is this hinder you? No, I don't think it necessarily hinders. Um, I think that in some ways it liberates us, um, knowing that there is a process in place that mm -hmm. protects me uh, legally right. from making a, a a wrong decision. I mean, of course, we're all human at the end of the exactly. day; we can make wrong decisions. Right. Um, I, I can't say that I'm the world's expert on when ECMO is indicated. I don't practice in a center of excellence. I can read and as much as I can and follow ELSO guidelines, et cetera. But uh, the ethics committee, and then we, we have the subcommittee for, for ECMO during this COVID crisis that allows me to just interact easily um, in kind of a formal setting with, uh, with my peers that have more experience or different experiences. And so we kind of, we make the decision more at a multidisciplinary level. And I think that that's very liberating um, for me. Um, that way I don't have to focus and devote 100% of my time on that rather than on other things, uh, other clinical duties. And, uh, 
but oftentimes it doesn't really come to that. You know, there are a lot of patients that I evaluate that I say, absolutely no, they're not a candidate. Mm -hmm. But I have to have that discussion with the family. It's not, I don't get to write in the chart, not an ECMO candidate, and then I just go about my day. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it, it's, if they're consulting me for ECMO, it's, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like tag, you're it. It's my decision. Um, they're, they're asking me, what do I think? Not, hey, we want you to come cannulate this patient for ECMO. I think that's probably different institution to institution, but in my institution, um, typically the surgeons have uh, have kind of a, a little bit of priority or certainly authority when it comes to who gets cannulated. Um, and uh, oftentimes we don't have to engage the ethics committee. I engage my kind of our COVID ECMO committee because that's those are the those are the parameters that we want. But if I say no, then I take it upon myself to discuss that with the family and give them an explanation of why. So uh, let's go this way since we're going that way. Tammy, you're next. Thoughts, um, comments, questions? Well, yes. I wondered, uh, you know, we're talking about how uh, the dynamic has shifted in treating patients uh, from a physician perspective as far as, you know, you used to, maybe not in your career because you're not that old, but, you know, used to what your doctor said is what you did. He, she was talking to you, not me. But do you find with, especially with the information that is available to people that didn't used to be available about medical treatments and, and different things, are they coming to you to tell you how to, you know, be the physician for their... There. And, and and how is that how's that affecting your practice? I mean, do you find it to be a hindrance? Because you know sometimes too much information is really detriment. Yeah, too much bad information. Yeah, I mean some like Dr. Google just, just enough to be dangerous, right? Yes. Uh, and they don't know what they don't know. They they read something on Wikipedia, or mm -hmm. they have some anecdotal YouTube clip that they watched mm -hmm. of some somebody that was salvaged from certain death by ECMO, and so therefore my family member needs it, and so. so and so, you get yeah, a lot of that. Now? I do, I do, but, uh, but I mean, not just even in ECMO. Just like in, I mean, medications are now advertised on TV. Do they come and say, yeah. "Hey, I want to be on this. Yeah, this is going to help me." You know. Sure. You have a lot of unethical people out there, you know, peddling mm -hmm. treatments that are not necessarily efficacious or proven to be mm -hmm. effective, and you have to be able to help navigate the patient through those weeds, and it, it becomes difficult, and you don't always win that conversation. Yeah. You know, but ultimately, uh, I think that. As a physician, it's my job to give the patient as much information that I can, give them the resources that if they want to do their own homework, they can go do that. These are the websites, that these are the studies that I'm using to make my decision. Ultimately, it's your decision, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to kind of outpatient treatments yeah. and things like that, when it comes to things like ECMO or vent strategies, proning, you know, mm -hmm. do we initiate dialysis now after they've been ecmo for a week and they're still having renal failure, things yeah. along those lines? That's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, patients or families kind of will demand that they want this because yeah. their brother knows their next door neighbors in EMT, in, yeah. you know, Kansas, and they said that they this is what happened and they live. You know, and so th those situations happen a lot, but it's generally if you just take the time to sit down, listen to them, mm -hmm. not just tell them what you think, but listen to what they're saying and how they're saying it and trying to kind of certainly put yourself in their shoes or understand their perspective and then have that discussion, oftentimes you don't have to escalate. Mm -hmm. But the committee's obviously there if you need to. Mm -hmm. 
I think yeah. that's called empathy. That's good marriage communication too. Yeah, I mean, it just you that's know. good marriage counseling too. Marriage counseling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to that. <laughs> I can, Kimberly. I think the challenge with ethics committees is like it, they're either really good or they're not, and the push for a lot of hospitals to come up with them is the pushback that physicians were getting from families and demanding that, no, I want to continue. And when did it become okay for a layperson to tell a medically trained provider that, no, I want to continue on. And the one case that we got called on the surgeon Everybody on the entire medical team exhausted weeks and weeks of conversations with this family on, on saying that there's nothing else we can do. This is futile. We need to stop. And when has it become, why is it acceptable that you have to escalate to somebody else? And when somebody codes, do we ask the family if we can stop resuscitation efforts? Are we as providers entitled to make that decision? We don't go, hey, what do you think? Should we keep going? We've been doing this 30 minutes. Yeah. Why is it different? And that's just kind of a, a struggle. Because some, there are good ethics committees, and then there's other ones that... They're just in name only? Yep. Hmm. And that brings up such up a, such a good point, if I can elaborate on it, because I want to get everybody's opinion about this, is what's the makeup of an ethics committee? We talked about it. You, you discussed it about it, having uh, non-medical people involved in it as well, which is, that, may, that, that can be a two-sided coin. Could be good, could be bad, I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, you know, these are very difficult decisions about people's life and death. Um, it's very difficult. So, you know, in terms of what you just said about the resuscitative efforts in the emergency room, patient comes in, they had a big MI, they're coding them, and it's futile, they can't get them back, and they don't, they don't provide ECMO. And they, you're right, they don't walk out to the emergency room, to the waiting room and say, you know, do you want us to stop or continue? So how do we address that? Two things. One, the makeup of the S committee, and addressing uh, Kimberly's thought on, you know, what is our responsibility to making these decisions? I'm asking you. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be situation specific, right? If you have a respiratory code on the floor, and let's just say that the nurse that was taking care of that patient's on her lunch break or she's transporting another patient somewhere else, somebody's filling in and you don't know the DNR status of the patient or anything along those lines, the right thing to do is to run a full code. And then at the time that you learn that, oh, this is a patient that's got advanced pancreatic cancer in their DNR. They came in for volume depletion and they had a code. Well, then you would stop at that point. Or in the ER as well. You know, you don't have that the luxury of the time to kind of sort through that, you know, mm -hmm. who's your power of attorney or yeah. look at their advanced mm -hmm. directive on file, things along those lines. But at the same time, a lot of these ethical issues that we're talking about and the futility of care, we're not talking about an emergency code situation. We're talking about a patient that's had a protracted hospital course with a bunch of medical issues, 
and we're deciding on whether to withdraw, escalate, or you know, just kind of keep the status quo. So I think that you can kind of look at each one of those situations a little bit differently and then kind of determine on which route you need to take. Um, you're right, some committees are better than others. That's absolutely true. And um, fortunately, you, you saw over that span in Texas that really only had to get the ethics committee really involved 30 times. And four, four million patient yeah, encounters only 30 times. Good. Yeah, that's pretty good. So it, it tells you that it's, it's important to have one because when you need them, you need them. But yeah. oftentimes, you don't need them. And so I don't know that, that if that means that uh, hospital administrators or systems can kind of take their eye off the ball and just have a have an ethics committee just for the sake of checking that box on the joint commission uh, review versus having something that having a committee that can really enact some change and really help patients and the patients' families. Uh, but it, it, you're again, it's hit or miss, right? And it, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. And some systems don't have them in-house. They're, they're a system ethics committee, so they yeah. may not even be boots on the ground where you are. Um, and so you do have a lag time from when they can evaluate the patient, and they're not able to come by the bedside and see. Our ethics committee has more than just clinicians, which is good and bad. Um, the lawyers, obviously, to protect the hospital as well as the physicians. The clergy's to, you know, to speak to the family about their social mores or their religious beliefs. And then case managers and, and, and nurse practitioners, and obviously the nurses on the team and the physicians as well. So, you know, sometimes it's good to have a lot of cooks in the kitchen when you have to make hard decisions because generally there's a ubiquitous agreement as to what the best path forward is. It's very rare that you would have just one person in the room be the dissenting opinion, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but they're also the ones that can also enact the treatments. You know, that's, that's a very rare situation. And if I were in that situation, then I would certainly lean on my subcommittee, you know, where I call my, my counterpart down in the medical center and say, hey, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And then we would have the discussion. We have had situations where at other outside hospitals, the physicians in the medical center said, not a good idea. I don't think it's it's going to be what you think it is. I think it's futile. And they've done it nonetheless. You know, they, again, at the end of the day, that was a decision that that care team at that site made. Um, but, you know, then they have to deal with the fallout of that and they have to see the treatment course through. And so it's it's it becomes a slippery slope, I guess you could say. And, and uh, But I always choose to engage people early and often. And I think just having that discussion with family as often as possible about what are your expectations you know, as we move forward? What do you want to see? What do you consider a success? Or what do you think the patient wants to have done? Because just because we can doesn't mean we should. And that's really what we're talking about. And I think, too, that notwithstanding, I think what you just expressed is the differentiation between a patient who is has had care escalated and is now in limbo essentially in the ICU versus a patient who um, a patient who is coming in acutely in the emergency room notwithstanding that differentiation there is some parallel uh, where you get confronted with patients maybe in the cath lab it could be an oncologist who is dealing with a patient with a, di a cancer diagnosis that says Chemotherapy is not, no treatment is appropriate for you. You, you are not salvageable. You're not helpful. I'm sorry, you're going to die. Same thing with the consult for surgery. You may decide this patient is not an appropriate candidate 
for me to operate, for anybody to operate on. And they're willing, they are able to go shop that if they choose to, and somebody may still decide to do something, whether it be get chemotherapy, whether it be provide dialysis, whether it be provide do coronary surgery, whether it be a lobectomy, it doesn't, doesn't make the AAA, it doesn't make any difference what it is. The point is, is that, you know, that, 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 that why is it so different in, in what, what makes the, the <coughs> chronicness, if you will, or the, the uh, decision to escalate and then not de-escalate different from doing something that is, you know, absolute, like a surgery or a particular treatment as vis-a-vis chemotherapy, is my example. I don't know. There's a lot of gray area there. That's the problem. That is the that's I think what the problem is is that there is an awful lot of gray, and I don't know the answer. I do know that when we look at escalating or continuing with care, two things. One, it's very difficult for the patient's family. I don't know why we put that in their court, so to speak. You approach it from a different perspective, having a conversation with them. But when you go to a family member, whomever it may be, and this may be a teaching issue, that you say, you know, this is what we could do. I don't really, you know, there's a very low chance, very small chance it could be helpful, but it's going to be a really long road. Um, What would you like us to do? In a non-medical mind, that very low chance means their patient, their family member is going to be the one that survives. Mm -hmm. And they say, yes, do all you can. Once you've done that, you own it. And what is the collateral damage, which we've referred to earlier, which is if, you know, no one wants anybody to die. But if you've consumed all of your resources vis-a-vis this pandemic with COVID and so forth, and you can't treat very easily treatable disease because the patients aren't coming to the hospital, there's no room or the resources aren't available to them, blood transfusions, whatever it may be, how many other people are affected downstream by a decision to wait for the family to make a decision, which is the only right decision to make for that patient, and we know it already in advance. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, if you just look at the Advanced Directive Act, you got, once you feel that something's futile, um, you have 48 hours to have the, the meeting, and then you still have another ten days, mm-hmm. assuming there's not an injunction from the from the from the judge. Uh, so that's right there is a twelve day process. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. and, and even just forget about the time. What about how the the how we're changing the dynamic where it's not supposed to be non medical people deciding what is the appropriate treatment? Now you of course have. Um, you have the right to refuse treatment or to ask for things, but it shouldn't be your decision whether or not it's an appropriate thing to do. I think that's, um, I think that's. Yeah, that was that's, Kimberly's that, point too. That's, it's inappropriate. It's cowardly on the provider's part, I think, because they don't want to make the decision because they don't, they don't want to tell someone that, you know, it, it might be coming from a good place. They don't want to tell them, your family member is going to die or you are going to die and this is not for you. But I just think it's, 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 it's the easy way out. If you know that that's not a good treatment, they shouldn't get the option. 
You shouldn't get mm-hmm. to have to make the decision because as a family member, of course, you're going to say, do everything to save my mom. If mm-hmm. it, you know, of course you would. Mm-hmm. Well, not everyone would. Um, I think it really depends. I do think that there are some people who can take this information and rationally assess it and come back and say, you know, and just simply ask, you know, if this was your mother, mm-hmm. what would you do? That's a tough question. Yeah. But when you ask that of a medical provider, when you know there is true futility, you're going to tell them that, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, I believe that. <clears throat> I, I trust that, you know, and just looking at the number only 30 times, so yeah. to me that shows um, that the healthcare community, our physicians are communicating that, mm-hmm. and that families, I'm just talking from being a family, not the, the how a health, you know, worker, mm-hmm. looking at from the family side, even though, it, you know, you're emotional and painful, if the if the physicians that are taking care of my family member and I'm relating to, you know, you know, my mother, um, I trust them, though I'm informed and I ask questions, but when they're tell when they're being forthright and, and giving me the, the truth, then it may take me a little time to process that, but that is gonna help me get to the right decision. Well and so, that's I wonder if that's why it so few go to the, the you know, the, the Advanced Directive Act because that time that you have to actually, until you get to that, mm-hmm. it may be a lot of them have the time to really, yeah. I mean, 12 days is a long time, yeah. you know, from the point of being told this yeah. is futile to, So it, you know. it, some of that, maybe that's why the time is like that because then it gives the family a chance to actually come to grips with it and be able to make that decision. You know, like she said, 12 days is a long time uh, to really think about things like that. Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, it's, it, number one, it's very rare that the ethics committee has to be the one that makes the decision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think one of the benefits of having multiple different specialties and backgrounds on the ethics committee is because it allows the discussion to be had with the patient from many different aspects mm-hmm. and varying degrees of understanding or nuance, et cetera. The way I communicate may be very ineffective for some people because I'm very pragmatic, you know, whereas a clergy member may understand the message that I'm trying to convey and they have a different way of delivering mm-hmm. that message. Uh, I'm not really aware of any situations, certainly in my practice, but I'm, again, I'm very, very young. Mm-hmm. I just said you're not old. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I have, I made it say I made a decision not to escalate and the consensus from the group is that we do escalate. Generally, they go along with the physician. And even when you talk about you have a 10-day period for other hospitals to accept the patient, it usually doesn't come to that, mm-hmm. right? Either the hospitals are full mm-hmm. or they see the futility in the treatment as well and they mm-hmm. say, we agree. We don't yeah. need to take this patient. Mm-hmm. You know, And so it's, it's not that this always plays out um, over a 10-day period and mm-hmm. they're calling places in Tacoma, Washington, whatever to try to find a hospital to take this patient it's usually just maybe one or two in the area and they say and that's well, the end of it. And the families change their mind at right because they hear a, a an outside opinion yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and this is probably before any of you were born <laughs> except for joe but that's right 
Where that? there, it, I mean, it was on the television all the time. A, a young woman, I believe, was in Florida that was in a coma. Shiva. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Terry Shiva. Terry Shiva. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that. that went on. Yeah. yeah. They even diagnosed her uh, in Congress over a uh, over the uh, uh, a video. It wasn't Zoom. They didn't have Zoom then. We didn't have Zoom. We didn't have Zoom. <coughs> But it was over a uh, some kind of a uh, <coughs> an old methodology for being able to. I think it was a video. I remember that very well. Yeah, mm -hmm. I remember that was that Dr. Too. Frist. It was a senator. Mm -hmm. He was a cardiac surgeon. He was a cardiac surgeon in Nashville, mm -hmm. and uh, he diagnosed her as being uh, mentally aware, being uh, having having awareness. Mm -hmm. Cardiac surgeons are the best person to make that judgment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think I have awareness? Speaking from experience. Though. Yes, exactly. <laughs> totally understand that. 